You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Dead Air Knife here with always Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2009 film Necromentia. Necromentia. I just like the title. It's funny because if we could just uh, look through the veil here, we have on our list Necromantic. We don't wait. That's not for a while, so don't get too excited. So every time when we were saying we're doing Necromentia, I kept rewiring that into my head as necromantic. Every time I go to search for anything on necromantia, it comes up as necrophilia. So I know all about people rewiring (laughs) your fucking goals here. Yeah, Yeah, this has been on the list for a while for me because I'd covered it for Ottawa Horror ages ago Mm -hmm. uh, when it was first brought to my attention by Matt of Encephalon. Mm -hmm. Encephalon has a song in this. So full disclosure, I adore Encephalon. They're friends of mine. I was super excited talking to Matt about horror one day, and he was like, oh, like just out of the blue, that he'd done a song for a horror film. And I was like, oh, cool, what film? And he's like, Necromantia. And the film has a torture sequence, which we'll get to, that has a song called The Claw that was written specifically for this. I guess Perry Teo had contacted Matt, who he was a fan of Encephalon, I suppose, that or they know each other otherwise, and had asked him to write a song showed him what the scene looked like and it was written written right for that scene which is really cool it does fit very very well and it is sort of the music that would be playing in the background of a scene like that so it fits very well and it's a great song standalone so you can find it on youtube if you want and find stuff on encephalon at encephalon.ca probably mm-hmm. i think that's right or from storming the base or their german label independent but yeah, so that's the Ottawa link and part of why I want to do this, aside from the film itself being visually interesting to me and dealing with themes that are interesting to me, uh, necromancy, suicide, hell, death, love triangle, not so much. But I love love triangles. I know you do. <laughs> I'm a romantic guy. A necromantic guy? only when i'm trying to raise people back from the dead yeah i guess it is a little touching it is a little touching there the idea of wanting somebody to come back so badly that you would attempt to cheat death even though you're damning yourself by doing it this affront to god let's say it's always for love, too. That's what I never get. That's what I don't get about necromancy. It's always for love. Why don't you just be a necromancer? Because you want to experiment. Because you want to see if you can do it. You're, you know, chasing that whole alchemist's read, right? I think that when you're dealing with mysticism and necromancy, I think that it becomes a lot more palatable to do something like that for love. Now, when you're dealing with narratives that involve people turning themselves into a lich or something like that. You're usually doing that. That kind of falls into the same category as people who do essentially necromancy for science, scientific gains, usually ego, wanting to either not die themselves to remain young or... Raise an army of the dead. Raise an army of the dead or to, in a sense, become famous 
for cheating death and creating life on your own. That's the mad scientist. That's the, the, the powerful lich sorcerer. But in these micro stories about individual people, you think about what death is. And if you're alive, then what's the difference? It, it, your death is not affecting yourself because you're dead, but the death of your loved ones and to what you would do to bring those people back. And I think people who experience death, who find those moments, small moments, not everybody, but some people find small moments. What would I not give to bring this person back? Would I have satanic rituals? And if this, if someone were to come to you with a book and said, if you read this book and you study up on this and you follow the rituals within this text, the person you love can come back. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic love because in this film we're seeing examples of brotherly love, for example. But I, I think that it's something that people can relate to being tempted by. I don't know if everyone would actually go, yeah, of course, let's just do this. But if we're living in a world that is supposing that necromancy is possible and we're living in a world in which flawed characters can't stand to be without their emotional crutches that their families provided for them, then yeah, I could buy that people would want to bring somebody back for love. It's it's the easier plot device. It's more palatable to a wider audience. Yeah. I agree. But I think that it fucking works. It works, right? So... Yeah, it just becomes, like, um, <clears throat> overused in my mind. That's all. I think that anything, yeah, I mean, it, sure. But I, I think that when people are dealing with these types of themes, they tend to overlook those aspects. Plus, they, oh, of course. If because, you put, and they can also relate to it. So, of course, they're going to overlook it. Because yeah. that if it, if it weren't there, they wouldn't be able to relate to a film like this, right? Mm -hmm. But then I always I always find that the person who is the subject of this to be such a simple person that I can't take them seriously from the get-go because going back to Suicide Club, the who are you connected to question, these people are only all connected to the one person who's dead. It's like no one else on the entire planet matters to them. They don't even matter to themselves because they don't, they can't envision life without this person. And that always really bothers me. I think that it probably comes from people who don't contemplate death on a regular basis or try to overlook the idea that someone that they love very much will die. I think that when things go against the plan, right, there's always the plan that people have in their mind. Like, for example, when my father died, there's a, there was a sense where, where obviously I'm devastated because this is like, you know, like one of my teachers of my life, right, who died. And but it's all part of the plan. Your parents are supposed to die before you. Yeah. I felt way worse for my mom. Because I could understand, I could envision the idea that you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, and this person becomes your best friend. And probably the there's a naive portion in your brain that tries to never really think about the inevitable. Because none of us get out of this alive, right? And life only goes in one direction, forward. Mm -hmm. So, like, so I, I always try to keep it like that. So maybe siblings fall into that category too, where you don't really think about your siblings dying as much as your parents and your grandparents and people who are much, much older than you. It's like when people are really devastated when uh, friends of theirs die. And, and not everyone. Everybody has like a different idea of... I've definitely thought about my sister dying, not in that cruel way that some people would... would <laughs> she's listening assume. right now. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. No, she's not. She's like, yeah, I totally thought about you dying all the time too. Um, <laughs> the minute she had children. Yeah. 
like you you have to think like that and it's it's astounding to me that people don't think like that like to assume that anyone's ever going to live forever and you can't not plan for their inevitable demise or their sudden demise especially if there's plans in motion that are larger than just them when you think about that suicide club question who are you connected to i'm now connected to the the plans that she has made so if she were to die of course i've given that some thought for the regular folk out there who haven't it's it's there's a huge disconnect between me and them that's why i probably do swallow the storyline here of the brothers because we're getting way too ahead in the plot but the idea that the brother isn't searching for his dead brother for love so to speak quote-unquote love yes brotherly love but not that like all-consuming romantic love Mm -hmm. it's also because his brother was taken too soon didn't necessarily have all the faculties to decide Mm -hmm. like his actions that led to his death had very very little to do with him he had no real decision making in that process so it was all very very sad and tragic and that maybe struck a note with me Mm -hmm. so it renders this watchable okay it's not just a love triangle. I'm, I'm like struggling with like liking a movie that has a love triangle in it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Struggle. <laughs> but this love triangle creates a circle of revenge and shows that people are connected to each other through pain, which is a line from the movie, mm-hmm. and they don't even know it, which is what is artfully done in this film. There's things about it that really remind a lot of people of Hellraiser. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I when Sometimes when I'm looking at some of the characters, I'm thinking Hellraiser, Slipknot video, Rammstein. Like there, there's... He'd worked on some Convict Christ videos with Perry Teo. Oh. Yeah, I do. I really like this <clears throat> filmmaker. Um, he's an Indonesian filmmaker. He came overseas, took film school, dropped out of film school, and I applaud him for that because you don't need to graduate things to have learned, right? And you don't need to conform to succeed. And he is like the poster boy for that in a lot of ways. He has a film coming up called Dark Horse that I've sort of been following. There's not a lot of information on it, but it looks like it's been shelved for a while to make way for this The Curse of Sleeping Beauty. The trailer for that looks amazing. Totally. And it's getting a lot of buzz. And who knows if that'll force people to dig into his back catalog like this and Gene Generation, I think, is his other more popular film. He's done a few, quite a few others. All independent you know, he's done some work on some larger budget films, um, usually like assistant producer and stuff like that. And there is a film that he worked on that is a larger um, Hollywood horror blockbuster theatrical release thing. He basically Alan Smith made his way out of attachment to this film. And so I don't know what film it is. There was an interview where he says the film that shall not speak its name. So I don't know what film <laughs> it is, but it was like, an Asian horror film that he was working on that got turned into a teen scream flick. So I'm very curious to know exactly what film it is that he's talking about. I have an idea of what film it is that he's talking about, but whatever. Um, So yeah, I'm a huge fan of this guy and I really want to see more of what he does considering that this in 2009 has a lot of the aesthetic of larger budget horror films coming out today. To me, when you said Hellraiser, I can agree. It's got a bit of Clive Barker meets Del Toro in in terms of a lot of the creatures have like kind of reminded me of things that might be lurking around in like Pan's Labyrinth if they were also Cenobites. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. So maybe if this guy 
the Curse of Sleepy Beauty comes out, people will start to retroactively discover his work much, you know, like Del Toro breaks through with things like Mimic and then Hellboy and then people go back and they look at uh, Kronos, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe he'll get top to do some larger original work to do. Mm-hmm. I like adaptations. The idea of books being adapted to film seems to be a far more popular when people are clawing back into classic literature and bring it to the screen um doing things like i'd like to see things like we've always lived in the castle done a la crimson peak seeing things like that having a director producer and writer because he did write this film necromentia along with stephanie joyce stephanie joyce wrote it he has a co-writing credit and he produced and directed it and did the creature design so he's one of those jack of all trades creators right this perry teo i'd like to see him really explored and handed millions and trillions of dollars to do more of this i really would (laughs) well yeah because this film is not without its shortcomings it's not a popular film by any means and people do watch it and be like okay hellraiser much i think that when i see things when i see comments like that it's always confusing to me because it comes from this weird place it was like when when the Matrix came out and then people saw Equilibrium and they just said, oh, it's just like the Matrix. I'm like, yeah, you like the Matrix. So why don't you like this? So when, I love I, Equilibrium, yeah, actually. Yeah, Equilibrium is, is an amazing movie. I like when he takes a puppy dog out of the trunk. Oh, my God. Heart it seems to me that these ought to be tested for disease. <laughs> anyway. So my point being is that when someone says, oh, it's like Hellraiser. Oh, my God. These things just look like Hellraiser, which is a funny sentence. <laughs> look like Hellraiser. You know, Hellraiser, the guy. <laughs> no, I've heard people say that. That's fine. That's um, fine. That stands because you're imitating them. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of these characters do kind of look like uh, Bob Hellraiser from the movie Hellraiser. I think that that's a good thing because I like Hellraiser. That or it's, you know, it gives you a little bit of credit because it's like, oh, you recognized it. Good yeah. for you. And by the way, it doesn't. Like because just because somebody did something before or does a similar type of character, these things do not operate as Cenobites. They have different motivations from Cenobites because of the fact that there's some iconography on them that would make you think that they're Cenobites by virtue of the fact that they're twisted, malformed versions of humans. Yeah, I guess I see the similarities, and and for sure I was getting. It was evoking those thoughts to me. But at no point did I say these are Cenobites, referring to themselves as Cenobites, acting like Cenobites in a movie that is not calling itself one of the Hellraiser films. When I was uh, in journalism school, I'd asked one of the music journalists for the Ottawa Citizen, uh, one of my burning questions when it comes to reviewing, right? Be it music, film, art, music. Like, did I say music already? And music, right? Um... (laughs) is how do the artists take it and how do you feel about saying something like, oh, I went to see this band. They're like, this band meets this band. How do those bands feel about you using those other bands to describe them? How do other films, you know, how do you describe another, how do you describe this fucking film, right? Like, oh, it's like Romeo and Juliet meets Hellraiser or something. So how do the filmmakers feel about that? And the journalist who's been around for a long time so i do kind of trust what she has to say she's like you know it's really 50 50 half the time i'm uncomfortable with saying it but i can't think of any other way to portray it Mm -hmm. like the artist it's really 50 50 because 
some of them just want to be described in terms of their own skill mm -hmm. or you know list what instruments they use people will get it it's way too vague so if you name like this band and this band okay now you're got the 50 50 problem of maybe they won't like those fucking bands or maybe they don't think they sound like those bands or maybe they think those are too lofty of comparisons for their little band right so it's really really tough but then how do you explain to people on the other hand i've had people be like oh you should listen to this band they're like this band that you like and i go listen to them and i'm like you're on crack because they're nothing like that at all so i could play this film and be like oh it's like romeo and juliet and hellraiser or something i don't know why i keep saying romeo and juliet because it's not really like that but whatever someone likened it to titanic and hellraiser anyway but i could show somebody who's a huge fan of horror and Barker and they would be like this is nothing like that whatsoever I've definitely heard descriptions I, I think people do this type of stuff for like you were saying because they need they're trying to explain to the general audience what they're in for and if it, it and it's, it's almost trying to use other words to define a word so and, and Generally speaking, if I say a word, a complicated word, and I don't, I can't think of an example right now, but then you're like, what does that mean? And then I use simpler, more common words to describe what that word means. You're like, oh, that's what that word means in reference, even though that word might not even exactly mean those two things, but combined, maybe it does, right? Yeah. It's like the entire bang of words. So you have um, people who do the exact same thing. Artists, I've seen... People, like the artists on albums themselves, say, this is kind of like this and that. And then when I listen to it, I was like, man, they even think that it sounds like a mixture of this and that, and I don't hear that. But, I, again, I think it's just to give you a, a, an idea. It's just fucking shit that people say to give you an idea of what you're in for. And I don't think that there's... Some people try to use it as a negative. But one of the things about horror fans is that you know, for a lot of times we like what we like. If, if you like ghost stories and people say it's a ghost story, you'll go and watch it because it's a ghost story. It doesn't matter that you've seen 50 ghost stories just like it. It doesn't matter if you say, oh, this is an alien invasion movie. And, and people are like, oh, I've seen like 50 alien invasion movies. Good. Because yeah. I want another invasion. Like, this is this has got some steampunky maker gas mask shit going on. There's people that will watch this movie just because it has that in it. Yeah, it's almost like you have to use the word steampunk. So if you're... Um... A&R says, oh, you know, you shouldn't use that word because that's not exactly what this is about, da, 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 da. but you can't not because that's where your crowd is, but you run the risk of disappointing them because it's not steampunky enough yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I get that. Because I could be, because even with this, I could say something like, oh, you know, if you like the aesthetics of Frankenstein's army, I bet you'd like this. Has similar kind of weird creatures in it, has like that sort of like maker thing to some of them there's a lot of metal hanging off of shit yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. you could you could easily use those words even though those are these are completely different films with completely different subject matters and even ways of being shot but if i'm just trying to tell you what your eyes will be looking at in this movie then yeah 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 i've often thought of uh, maker aesthetic and steampunk sort of look to Sleepy Hollow of all things and it's not a steampunk film whatsoever. no but that works because you have the, the 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 vaguely goth Victorian outfits you have 
little bit of gadgetry, a little, a little 1888 gadgetry. Yeah, for sure. I, and, and people are acknowledging it in the in the Sleepy Hollow. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, the people acknowledge that in the Sleepy Hollow movie as oh, Crane is is just a really experimental scientific guy. But we're talking about like the 1850s, so he's got. Um, yeah, like, like, what did you say when we were accoutrement, like scientific <laughs> accoutrement on his face and, and, and all this other shit, lenses and, and crap. Well, in the, while in the meantime, you're in a village with lanterns and bales of hay bales for of bedding. Hay. Yeah. And, 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 and so I definitely see what you're coming with and that works. It fits. And people, I bet, cause you know what? People who probably like steampunk, I bet you like that Sleepy Hollow movie. Maybe outside of film, another thing that I found where this, not derivative, because I I'm, don't want to paint the picture that we're saying this is like a whole bunch of other shit, because it is a very unique story, and it is a film that stands on its own There's entirely. a lot of unique things going on in this movie. Oh I my god, yeah. But, I swear to god, if something was derivative of this, there's a book by Nicole Cushing, who's actually a Stoker Award nominee this year, and I'll explain why I know that. Um... Mr. Suicide that I just read and it is an amazing novel, an amazing horror novel and it's not quite splatterpunk because that scene's dead, but if it were not dead, if it were resurrected, so to speak, if we had a little necromancer to bring it back then (laughs) she would be one of the new splatterpunks and she's like one of the coolest female authors I've read in a fucking long time, so Mr. Suicide, if anyone's like really big on this necromancia film then they'll definitely enjoy mr suicide and there is even a character a lot like mr skinny who we'll meet when we talk about this film um nicole cushing has another book that i'm reading right now the sadist's bible and mr suicide so far is a lot stronger but i'm only part way through sadist bible she is on the jury this year as well for the Horror Writers Association. And the reason I know all this stuff about Horror Writers Association is for those that don't know or don't, like, stalk me online. Well, first, what's the Horror the horror Writers Association? Drop some knowledge. What is, exactly is that? It's an association of horror writers. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what I do for the Horror Writers Association, it's an American-based worldwide organization that promotes the interests of horror writers, promotes horror fiction, and is a resource for fans as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I do the new releases page, which is just a wall of drool-worthy awesome, because I'm not a very, like, sitting on committees, voting on stuff, reading things, and being, like, networking. I'm not, like, one of those sorts of people, naturally. Uh, I'm naturally, though very visually driven and if like you and i can relate to standing in a fucking video store and all our listeners can relate to standing in a video store as a kid just drooling over the cover art right yeah. you go to a music store and you flip through albums you don't have a fucking record player i know <laughs> i was so fucking tempted recently to like start getting into buying records because of all these fucking records that have been put in HMV. They're like, look, we sell records now. And I was like looking at all the guys, like, fuck, these are so awesome. I, I know. Like, I don't have the means to play any of it. You can get a shadow box and frame them. Yeah. Like seriously, because it's really about the art. Like aside from about the collectability, aside from the audio quality of a fresh vinyl and all that junk. And you can get nice laser, you know, digital turntables now, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But like, it's about the art for me. And books. Like, in a bookstore, I could be lost for days, literally days, 
looking at covers. I don't even read the backs half the time. I'm looking, I'm judging the book by its cover, right? <laughs> they try not I to do. do that, but it's what we do. It is what we do. So I, I invite you all to judge books by their cover uh, <laughs> at horror.org because that's what I do. Uh, monthly, if not weekly, depending on how many releases there are. Yeah, I've definitely seen you pump out a couple in a week before. So. Yeah, and sometimes it can be months because, you know, writers cycle the same way that films and the horror films cycle. Uh, horror novels cycle and the Horror Writers Association members, which I think there's like 3,000 or something like that worldwide. Mm-hmm. Chunky, yeah. They um, release, it. and if they have the gumption to let us know that they have a release, because a lot of books are released without anyone, you know, no real fanfare, that are the release in very large scale, so they forget to tell little old me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, go and take a look at horror.org. And I do post them like around and stuff like that because I do like really appreciate the art that goes into them. Some covers are fucking fantastic and they want me to scoop up the book like Mr. Suicide. And not only the title and the premise, like the, the whole book, Mr. Suicide, is a definite buy for anyone that's into horror, I think. Um, but yeah, so while you're checking that out, you may notice lately there is... Um, some interesting horror writers association news if you want to know more about scandalous things go check out brian Keane's blog or listen to his horror show podcast uh where he talks a lot about the horror writers association among other things like he follows a lot of horror television and stuff like that but i do tune in to his even though he's not a member it's a great source of horror writers association news aside from the horror writers association blog and website they have an open Facebook group as well on Facebook. I'm actually tapped in now. Aside from posting just pictures of the new releases. Yes, this is the part that I want to get to. I'll be writing the recently born of Horrific Minds column, which just expands what I've already been doing for, I think, two two and a half years now. I've been posting the new Seems releases. Like it, yeah. yeah. I'll be writing up an article every month for the newsletter for that. So that's pretty cool. I'm going to find out that if after it's released to our members in the newsletter, if I can't just cross post it to my blog or something like that, so that those who aren't as visually inclined (laughs) to my clickbaity fucking eye candy monthly horror posts, if they want like just a digest of what new horror novels have come out in the last month, then they could probably go there and not have to be a member. Yeah. You can just share the wealth. And that's what we do. That's what the Horror Writers Association is really all about, is just igniting interest in horror. Mm-hmm. Raising it from the dead. Darn like too. Novelmancy. Novelmancy. I am a novelmancer. I'd rather just be a horrormancer. Horrormancer? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It's all about specificity for me. Like necromentia. Where does the mentia come in? I think it's because it's a dimension that they're going to. Ah, hell dimensions. That makes sense. That makes sense. A sort of nondescript hell dimension. There is a fucking cool hell dimension, just to go back to Mr. Suicide, as like an amazing novel. I swear to God, I need to find this girl and ask her if she's watched this film. Mm-hmm. Because reading her book, I was just like, oh my God, this is like an expansion upon mm-hmm. what was created in Necromentia. Again, so if you like Necromentia, you read Mr. Suicide... And then you get more of what you like. Yeah. Instead of seeing Hellraiser, watching this and being like, me, it seems like Hellraiser. Then you got yeah. no original ideas. And I'm the king. Yeah. It's like if you were to buy a metal album, would you never buy another metal album because they're, oh my God, 
like all these other genres of like all these other metal bands exist within the genre and some of them are going to sound kind of similar they're all going to be fucking talking about ancient gods and being a pirate or something sorry i'm mixing things but it doesn't matter like it's, it's just, it's you just, just got Ailstorm on the mind. Ailstorm <laughs> and baby metal. That's your that's your life right now. You're wearing an Ailstorm shirt. It's Metallica. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love Ailstorm. I know you love Ailstorm. <laughs> no, I know. It's like yeah. You might as well just go back, get the Crossroads song or whatever by Robert Johnson, and just fuck all music since. Then. Yeah, exactly. Because like, oh, mm, mm, kind of, kind of like something else I heard. That's yeah. weird to me. That's weird. Yeah, I hate when people over here, if I'm listening to something that's remotely new metal ask and they're like, okay, Marilyn Manson. And it's like, what? What the fuck is your problem? I know. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've established that we hate lots of people. <laughs> Most of them. You know, I can't, it's, people complain to me about the fact that I'm usually really chill about a lot of things. But what frustrates me, so ironically makes me not chill is when other people are fucking uptight and not chill about things. Yeah, you just want everyone to chill. I just want everyone to chill and to not care you so You know, much. we need some ketamine. Uh, ooh, wait. I don't know if I want that, unless I'm going to be at a phone booth, because that seems like the best place <laughs> yeah, know, to right? inject it into the my fucking un- throat. <laughs> <laughs> the most unsafe place ever to fucking do K. My God. Wait, hang on a second here. We've been talking for what seems like a century now. What the fuck is this movie even about? We meet this wonderful person, Hagen, Mm -hmm. who unfortunately for me and for Wes and now for you, I think looks like Bubbles from Trailer Park Boys. (laughs) You fucked me for that entire movie because you said it. You said it's Bubbles from Trailer Park Boys and it's not. It's not the actor or anything, but... No, what it actually said is, you know what? He's got this look. He's very serious. He's a, he's bringing a girl back from the dead. He's been hanging out with her dead body and keeping it for quite some time. And you were like, does he even know what he's doing? Yeah. Or is he just like muddling through this? Or does you know does he have some expertise in keeping a body alive? And we're like, I'm like, I don't really know. But he looks the part, right? Like he's got all his scientific accoutrement. He's yeah. got electricity happening, and he's yeah. she's in a bathtub. That's good. <clears throat> But he also looks like Bubble, <laughs> which unfortunately he does, but not in a bad way. It's just every so often. It's like that's the dark. That's a dark spinoff of Trailer Park Boys that that's coming next. It's like yeah. the next season on Netflix is going to be that Trailer Park Hell. My God, he, unfortunately. So now I've ruined that for you all. If you haven't seen this, you're going to just die laughing in the first few <laughs> minutes of this. Because we do get a little glimpse of this hell world and some of the creatures, which I really, really like the creatures in this film. I love these creatures. And let me tell you something. When you are doing a movie like this, when, when I first... It's interesting that you said that this cat worked on a lot of uh, some music videos and stuff. Because one of the things that was running through my mind when I first saw this, I was like, it's shot like a fucking music video. And I don't mean that in a shitty way. But I mean that in a way there's a lot of quick cuts happening where I'm seeing a lot of interesting creatures and a lot of interesting things and so it's sort of flooding my senses but not giving me a second to focus on any one thing for too long and you as a listeners might be thinking well I don't like that that's not a good thing hold on a second because what that actually does is it completely 100% we're got an 87 minute runtime here we don't have a lot of time to set things up 
But this opening, I want to say, 60 seconds to a minute and a half of film tells me the aesthetic of what I'm in for, for this film. And I was engaged. I was immediately engaged from the moment this movie started. I've never fucking seen this before. I haven't seen so much of a fucking trailer for this movie. And nothing. I couldn't even remember the name of it. <laughs> I was fine with him not doing homework because I knew how attention grabbing this was. And it does that job of telling you right away how close of attention you need to pay. There's been films where, like, Memento is a good example of that. It seems like a slower paced film. It seems like sort of like. Uh, not a popcorn film, but a drama, like a typical mm-hmm. drama. But if you're not fucking paying attention, you're going to get lost, mm-hmm. right? And then there's other films that are moving really fast and kinetic with a whole bunch of nothing. So you don't really need to pay attention to all of this. It's just annoying. So when you're saying that people might not want to have all these little tiny things force-fed to them really quickly, in this it's really rich because it's doing that job of telling you how close of attention you are going to have to pay to the small things to get this storyline, mm-hmm. which isn't overly involved. But it's non-linear. That throws people off. It, I wish it didn't. It never throws me off. But... Look, you're talking about someone who has created non-linear storylines. Yeah. So I, I get it. If like, the hints and the breadcrumbs are there. Yeah. And they are here. Yeah. This first minute or so does let you know that you're going to have to follow some breadcrumbs. Yeah. And this is where to look for them. hmm Yeah. The introduction is quite touching because you do get that this is a man, Hagen, whose girlfriend Elizabeth has died. And he wants to bring her back. And he's talking to her dead body like, you know, what things are going to be like when you come back. I'm afraid that you've been dead too long. And she seems to have been dead for quite some time. Yeah, it's, it's weird. She's in the... It, it seems... Like, what would you say? Like, it's, is it a couple of weeks or like a week? Like the rigor mortis is, it looks like it's loosening. Like, you know what I mean? So it's hard. Sort to... of. Rigor mortis loosens, I guess, like 15 hours after. But then you throw in this, the actual full storyline. Because mm-hmm. this isn't just about Hagen and Elizabeth, unfortunately. For as fun of the music video beginning of this film would lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis is in this as well. And yeah. his hair is quite long by the time Hagen meets Travis. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis is a pal, friend, person, acquaintance of Hagen's. I don't know how they really know each other other than Travis has been watching him hang out with his dead wife, right? Yeah. Or I guess it's his girlfriend. He re- Travis refers to Elizabeth as his wife, but it's just his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. In fact, she had another boyfriend entirely. Yeah. But she was with Hagen. She's now dead. Travis was watching them and watching him perform necrophilia on Elizabeth's body and keep her for how long? Travis's hair is quite long. Mm-hmm. We're treated to a small flashback because Travis says, "You know what? I get it. I'm not judging you. Like, mm-hmm. so you hang out with your, so you're fucking your dead wife, and whatever." This scene is really interesting because it's done in a really, I thought, creative way. He's shaving Hagen for no reason, but it. <laughs> But there is a reason because as the audience, you're wondering, is he going to fucking slit his guy's guy's throat? It's super intense. And what a way to intimidate somebody. You're saying some weird shit saying, I know your secret. You're, you're washing your dead girlfriend's body and you're doing weird shit to it. And, and you're, you're under some weird delusion that through strength of will that she's going to come back because we find out that he doesn't have a method to bring her back. Uh, so he's just under, he's, she's just going to come back for some reason. We're not exactly clear 
what gave him that impression. Yeah, he but, seems like he's trying to push himself over the edge of experimenting <clears throat> with some sort of Frankenstein. Yeah, he seems. Yeah, thing. yeah. He's got her hooked up to some sort of electricity, and it's not very clear. But thank God for the steampunk maker aesthetic that we don't care if it works or not. It looks cool, right? Yeah, it looks cool, and it's serviceable because we know that electricity brings things back from the dead. Yeah. We also know that carving all sorts of sigils on things brings things back from the dead. It's which... a nice. That's a nice thing about using imagery and ideas that we're familiar with because a lot of the groundwork has been laid before yes luckily luckily and they don't have to create an entire mythology that's sound and i'm sure there are many who would have followed the writings of john d or who are really into like esoteric or occult or whatever dark magics they're choosing and follow and read up on necromancy proper who could pick holes a fucking mile wide in this? But whatever, it's work. It's serviceable to me. Um, Travis lets him know that there definitely is a way to bring someone back from the dead, and Travis knows it. Mm-hmm. And he's telling him all this, like you said, with a fucking straight razor to his throat, basically. Mm-hmm. Even though he's friendly, doing a good job shaving him, yeah. like a nice guy. Shaving scene goes on quite a while while Travis explains to him that, you know what? You can go back, and I'll show you how, because I lost my brother, and we are treated to a small flashback of Travis with very short hair, and it's the hair length thing that gives me an idea of how long Elizabeth has been dead. Because when we see later on in the film, when Elizabeth does die, Travis's hair is still short. So Quite short. It's probably like two inches long, and by the time we meet him, when he's shaving Hagen at the beginning, it's well past his chin. It's like shoulder length hair. That takes a long time to grow hair like that. It does. Now, if we jump a little bit ahead in the movie, there is a point where it says 11 months ago. But I I'm, I was like, I feel like it would take longer than 11 months to, for him to grow his hair like that. But I'm not entirely sure. And all of that, but if Elizabeth has been dead for 11 months, it might have asked a question that was burning in my mind. I was like, is he just, would it not make more sense to just refrigerator dog? Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm not, look, I'm not an expert at keeping bodies, but I think that the my first thing that I would think to do was get her on ice. She could be partially embalmed. There is a machine that looks sort of like EEG machine or something, but it also could be an embalming pump. Like, I don't know what it is, but she could be partially embalmed. There is a guy um, that had kept his ex-lover's dead body. I don't even know if he was an ex-lover, but he, she was like a younger girl that he fell in love with and she died and... One of those, eh? Yeah. He kept her alive, or kept her alive, <laughs> in his mind, and in his arms, mm. tender-like, for years and years, and a couple years in his own apartment, and then when he got caught, she was, like, brought to the family tomb, and apparently her body is as good as Lennon's, you know? It's, oh. Yeah. He did a really good job home embalming her. So, yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. It seems like a couple... Like, maybe two weeks, maybe a week and a half by the time we see Elizabeth, just to guess. But we're told it's 11 months, but the hair growth tells me that it's been two years. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to say. So Elizabeth has been dead for quite some time. I guess Hagen's just doing a really good job of keeping her fairly preserved. Mm -hmm. Even though the whole rigor thing does bother me, because he has to, like, almost snap her knees to get in closer to her girl parts yeah 
Well, he agrees. Yeah, and Travis has said, you know, you're going to go back to bring Elizabeth back from the dead, and you're going to bring my brother back with you. Yeah. Because his younger brother had died. And he doesn't, well, you're a coward. You don't want to go yourself. And he's like, yeah, I'm a coward. I don't want to go myself. And I don't know even if I can get back. So you are going to do this. And it's not like you're not getting anything out of it. You are the perfect person to do this because you really want to bring Elizabeth back. And the only way to bring her back is this method. So, And if you fail, I know it doesn't work. And if you succeed, then we're all fucking crap and cherries. See, he'd explained that he knows how to get Elizabeth back while he had him in the shaving chair and they were all palsy-walsy. Now, they're having this conversation while he's strapped face down to what looks like a massage table Mm -hmm. or like in a tattooist parlor. And he's about to get a Ouija board, basically. Yeah. Or a map to all these hell gates. It's like satanic. 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 That's that's Mm -hmm. my that's my hot new uh, cocktail I've been making up. Uh, It's spicy. It gets you drunk real fast, and you wake up, and you feel like you've been in another dimension. That's my new satanic. Me and a friend developed a drink called the Salty Shaft last weekend. I didn't drink any of it, but. It's uh, basically a salty dog, but way more perverted. (laughs) So he's got a bunch of satanic iconography that he's going to carve into the dude's back. Works for me. Again, these are familiar ideas with their own spin on it that has already had a lot of groundwork laid for me. So when someone says, I'm going to carve, he doesn't even have to explain it. He just has to start doing it. I'm Especially like, oh. if someone's seen the Books of Blood film. Exactly. Yeah. And, then, and, and then you just say to yourself, yeah, I gotcha. I, I'm, I'm up to date with the story. I gotcha. I can follow this. Yeah. So it's good, I think. And, well, guess what? He transfers into the Diefenbunker. <laughs> Basically. Every time I see scenes of this, uh, the passage to the underworld in this film, it's the Diefenbunker. So... Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, for budgetary reasons, there are interesting interpretations of hell or other dimensions. Sometimes it's a dark room and you can tell that it's just a dark room with a lot of maybe black paint on the wall so you can't really see how far anything is. And then they put a fog machine in it and they just sort of wander around and this is... There's a whole film called Low that is filmed exactly like that, all in one room with, I think, two actors. Exactly what I'm thinking about. There's, I mean, sometimes for budgetary constraints, you can do something like Cube, where you literally, you built one room and then you color it differently and then you say it's many rooms. Yeah. Or you do what Hellraiser did and in Hellraiser 2, and is this a hell dimension or is this a very beautiful painting that has just been set in the background and that's hell and you just give a sense of movement and there's no movement it's a picture so in this sense what they've done is they've taken the idea of hell which is not something that i haven't heard of before the idea of these infinite dimensions with multiple layers to them that can be interpreted a myriad of different ways and in this sense it is an endless corridor that looks kind of just like an enclosed bunker. This is obviously just a cool location that they found to shoot in, and they said, yeah, this is hell, and we'll just light it really creepily, and then we'll even deliver dialogue later on in the film, which I thought was very interesting. It was um, almost like Neil Gaiman-ish to me, just the idea of like, oh, you thought it would be this thing, when it's actually 
this thing. Are you disappointed? Yeah. Almost like saying to the to the audience, eh? You thought like this is hell, aren't are you disappointed? You are? Well, so am I. And I'm a character that lives here. So. <laughs> like what did you expect? Yeah. Exactly. Almost mocking the the idea of hell as like, oh, was it like a 70s album cover to you? Which works perfectly to explain why it looks exactly like Diefenbunker. And it also helps, you know, people have been scared here on Earth by walking through places like this. So, yeah. of course, that's what hell is going to be like, or at least the passage toward hell. So we're, we're introduced to some characters that, for lack of a better term, are demons. Mm-hmm. And these demons... Uh, they have the one thing that they all seem to have in common is they have a, a, a gray pallor. Um, they might all have black eyes. I'm not sure. We've only seen really the face of one. Uh, yeah. Another fellow doesn't have eyes, and the rest are wearing gas masks. They seem to have medical crap attached to them, uh, like head braces or quite a lot of them. And I guess it speaks to the whole like you're going to look somewhat like how you did when you died or whatever it was that shaped your death through your life. Yeah. So if you died perhaps like on a medical table or something with like a bunch of crap on you, maybe you still have that stuff with you. Yeah. Or if you spent your life, you know, attached to some sort of machine to help you breathe, you're going to carry that with you into the afterlife, even if it wasn't exactly Mm -hmm. why you died or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the pallor is kind of nice because of course they're all dead and that immediately translates that to the audience right yeah These yeah you, you know dead demons yeah you know what you're talking to is is not a human being anymore mm-hmm. um and also it, it's a fairly cost-effective way to get that point across and again the, the the stuff that they have you have one character one creature that has a lot of work done on it that looks very very different almost looks um like like to me i when i was looking at it i was like fuck man this looks like a like a Todd McFarlane or like a Greg Capullo monster, like early image type stuff, like a Creech or um, the Max, just like big teeth, uh, no eyes, uh, muscular but fucked up. Like the the body has been somewhat contorted. It has a bunch of uh, metal prosthesis coming out of it. It, it seems to be lumbering. Yeah, it's, more it, animalistic yeah, than human. It, for it is, sure. but it is definitely the the what would you call it the executioner of this of this uh realm realm, yeah Yeah. and not without his own pains he's got an open spine and i really like that he is a head-to-toe creature he's not just you know like a dude wearing like this open spine thing and this huge mouth that's not all he has going on if you look at the way that the feet and the legs are shaped and yeah he's got he's got like uh, i wouldn't cut it up Clippy clops, they're not like cloven hooves, but he's got like backwards knees and stuff. Yeah, so they did like a really good head to toe design on this. So I really do like that particular creature a lot. And even though the, the on the other end of the spectrum, the least designed creature, you have Mr. Skinny, who is this demon that appears through the television of Travis's younger brother, who's home mm-hmm. alone a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis's younger brother, Thomas. And Thomas is who he wants to have rescued by Hagen, who's going into the afterlife. To get Elizabeth, his dead girlfriend. Well, when Hagen's there in this hell dimension, he encounters these demons who, in a very demonic way, they know all about him. They know all about Elizabeth, and they know why he's there. They're not mm-hmm. surprised by his presence whatsoever, uh, which I always like. I always like when you're dealing with otherworldly beings or interdimensional demons or something where they kind of they know your shit. So, like, 
you don't really have a plan. Yeah, they've been watching you and they've been paying attention. And, like, this is their turf, right? Yeah. So, (laughs) Hagen doesn't last too long because he gets fucking stomped by that big dude with the big teeth. And just gets his skull carved in. Yeah, basically his eyes pulled out and his skull pulled apart. Yeah, it's yeah. not the most clear effect ever. There's other effects later that are far more heinous and clear. But we know that Hagen doesn't last long, no. Not at all. And that's kind of what you would expect for a person with nothing really going on. and No idea what he's really doing. Kind of looking like a big dirty baby. <laughs> yeah, totally. He really does. And, you know, the bubbles reference yeah. sticks. He does. It's kind of like stick bubbles in the hell realm. <laughs> about as long as he <laughs> In there to rescue somebody. And, of course, he'd be like, what the fuck are you doing, noob? Travis would have had a much better chance rescuing somebody from the afterlife because he's been there. They know him. You know, they know what he's after. Sure, they want to play these quid pro quo games. Of you give us this thing and we'll give you that thing. Mm-hmm. You can't have this till you do this for me. They want to play these demonic gambling games, sure. But he's sending somebody in that they've never met before. They're going to squash like a bug and they do squash them like a bug. Mm-hmm. This is where we're brought to where the main story is going to be taking place. But that's this is in the past. Yeah, why, why Travis needed to rope Hagen into going into the hell world? So... So for our audience members, or for our listeners, what it's important to note is this is about as modern as the story is going to get. The rest of the story is going to jump around continually in the past. Which I, which if people have a problem with this movie, it might be that. But I, it didn't really bother me, although we'll get into it when we get into the ending. So we find out that now we have a Travis, a short-haired Travis, and his parents have died. He is the sole... He he has sole custody of his younger brother, who is not able to take care of himself. He is, he seems to have some mental problems. He's in a wheelchair. Uh, it's not exactly clear what's wrong with him, but what is understood is that like muscular dystrophy or spina bifida or something. Uh, spina knows? bifida sounds probably what it but might be. But he's got far more developmental delays mm-hmm. than someone with spina bifida typically would. So he's got. Multiple things wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Multiple birth defects, unfortunately, um, and isn't verbal. He can't talk, Not so he really, doesn't. No. He can't really communicate with his brother. No, so his brother has to take care of him, and they has he has an, a, a what seems to be a, a fairly large inheritance from their dead parents, but unfortunately, it was to be stipend out three hundred dollars a week, which is a pittance, and it's unfortunately it's held in escrow because I'm pretty sure that. Travis, heroin addict that he is, does have his brother's best interests in mind. Mm -hmm. He is interested in getting off heroin. Mm -hmm. He is interested in his brother doing better or being able to care for his brother, wanting someone to watch over his brother. He's forced to work to make ends meet, and those ends barely meet. And They're little tiny ends to begin with because they're living in a fucking disheveled they're probably squatting who knows it's like the filthiest weirdest place ever yeah it Um, is really weird yeah and unfortunately it's such an american reality that there's no health care for someone in this kid's position and there's no social service really for somebody in the older brother's position we're really really lucky in a place with universal health care that would care for the basic needs of a kid like that where I can I can't see how three hundred dollars a week 
would pay rent or buy food, let alone medications. And like the kid needs braces and some sort of entertainment right now, all that he can provide for him. I didn't see any food or drugs. You know what I mean? Like the child has to be in some sort of discomfort, but there's nothing there to relieve those discomforts. And the medical like braces and things that he's using are old, is old hockey gear and definitely fucking steampunk, Mm. you know, uh, weapons montage built (laughs) fucking thing holding his legs straight. Like it's definitely not medical gear by any means. And he's parked in front of a staticky television because they have no cable and the TV doesn't pick up anything over the air. And it's surrounded by something discarded from a carnival. It's fucking. It's cut out. It's terrifying. I don't even know. And we'll get to that. It's crazy to me. That's all that Travis can provide is this carnival cutout, a staticky TV, and having his brother strapped in a bunch of hockey gear sitting in a wheelchair all day. Mm-hmm. And he's got to go to work. Now, what that job could possibly be? Because I was like, well, he's got a job. So what is he doing that's not paying? Because like, I, I figured, okay, let's say he has a minimum wage job and he's probably, if he pulls in like, let's say, Maybe if he's lucky, it's another three hundred dollars a week. So it's six hundred bones a week. I was like, man, you know, like you could maybe pass a broom over your apartment if you're making six hundred dollars a week. Maybe. Not if you're a heroin addict. Yeah, see, I don't know anything about doing heroin or how expensive heroin is. So is it a pricey drug? I yes, don't... yes, it is. Oh, okay, I don't. Well, know. yeah. <laughs> When you couldn't be bothered to pay rent and stuff like that, and you're making $300 a week and have a brother to feed, clothe, give meds to, and have someone else watch over, because he should be having some sort of caretaker. Mm-hmm. I don't think, like, bedpans, man. Bedpans are a reality in this situation. Yeah. Someone needs to be on that shit, no pun intended. But like, Well, I, I mean, this this is, a, this is a kid that needs 24-hour watch. Oh, for well, sure. Well, especially when we learn... A little secret about this kid uh, he goes into let's say his head when he's <laughs> left alone to his brother's mysterious job mostly yes there are some real world counter to that but yeah he what would you do you know you're in a chair all your life and there's no one around the tv doesn't work and then it's tuned to static and you've got this hideous weird cardboard or like plyboard cutout thing that surrounds your tv that is instantly transporting you into carnival territory yeah it's like very you have to see it to understand it's like it it, it looks kind of like an elephant but kind of not it seems to have little legs coming out the bottom of it uh i don't know what the fuck it is it reminds me of something like you know in house of one thousand corpses when they go to take the murder ride yeah and when they just go in on the train where the little coaster goes in it's like a cutout that would surround the entrance to that for real tunnel of hell yeah like after the fireflies got all lit the fuck up in the second movie they dismantled their mr satan carnival ride and this guy like it was the side of the road and he's like oh it'll be good for the tv yeah thomas will like that that (laughs) that's fun so he fixates on this tv and yeah in his own head somehow he's concocted this friend this friend or the hell world is communicating to this child and sending a demon specifically mm-hmm. to rope this person in. Well, we've established in this lore that demons are specifically attaching themselves off onto people who are vulnerable. Either they're physically and mentally vulnerable or or, or, or I think it's just susceptible is what I'm trying to say. It's susceptible to the demon's influence. Yeah, and I think that 
Thomas is a good example of somebody who is vulnerable and susceptible, and he's also sitting in that chair screaming, something fucking entertain me now, please, because I'm going out of my fucking mind. Mm -hmm. Um, The demon called Mr. Skinny Mm -hmm. is this rotund, porcine, giant, round, fat man. He's massive, like Butterball, if you want to play Cenobite game here. He's big. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like Butterball might be... Reminds me of, like, the butcher from Diablo. Is that the right person I'm thinking of? Um, you know what? It kind of just, like, he's the guy from, like, from Your Next who just, like, ate a lot of cheeseburgers. He's super round. He's super round. And he's wearing not a lot of clothes. He's wearing an adult diaper. Yeah, and he's very manic, childlike. Almost like he's, he's channeling, like, Bozo's Super Sunday show. Where he's just like, I'm a funny clown guy, but I'm a grotesque guy in a pig mask with tubing coming out of my nose and blood ta- being pumped around. It's like and talking about killing yourself and how good that would feel and Don't you want to kill yourself? Don't Thomas? you want to kill yourself? Come on, tell me. Yeah. yeah, he's got a little song. They even put the lyrics up with a bouncing ball. That was ball. really surreal. It was at the time. At the time when it happened, I was thinking, I don't know if I like this. Then thinking back on it, yeah, I like this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my number one favorite portion of this film. There's nothing like cheerful, circusy music telling you that you should probably kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. And the lyrics are catchy. It's a pretty little song. You really have to see it to believe it. It can take people out. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who get to this point in the film and go, what the fuck is this shit? I'm but done. But if you were to look at it in terms of this is a, a kid who is being appealed to by a demon the way that you would entertain a kid on like a Saturday morning show. Yeah. So it's not, well, this doesn't make any sense. It makes fucking perfect sense. It makes sense. perfect sense. And it's done really, really well. It just sort of like breaks the fourth wall with the bouncing. But I assume that that's what the kid's seeing. So that is exactly if, what the so kid's So if the seeing. kid is seeing this... Then, Except that it's shot from a different perspective. Well, right? I mean, yeah, it's true. Like it, it's it's shot from the perspective. And it's not happening on the TV. If this were happening on the TV screen, then the bitchy audience would be like, "Okay, this is what the kid's seeing." But it's done in a little more theatrical way. Mm-hmm. I love it, and I love this. I love this scene. Yeah. Um, so Mr. Skinny does want to convince Thomas to kill himself. And he even puts, like, a rusty fucking hacksaw blade. Like, oh, wouldn't this feel so good? Yeah. Just yeah. then his brother comes in the door and takes the blade away from him. So it's nice that his brother is kind of on top of this. I'm sure that it's a recurring problem. It seems that this demon, Mr. Skinny, has come through the television to entertain Thomas several times before. Because every time... Thomas hears the little theme song that plays in the background when this demon's about to show up. He gets very excited and happy. It's also some sort of fucking stimulation because he is strapped to a chair all day with nothing but static on the TV all day. Extremely depressing reality when you think about it that way. So you can be, like, happy that this demon comes to see this kid and entertain him a little bit. Travis really does try, it seems, to not leave him alone that long. And this is when, when he finds the blade, he decides to get a babysitter. Yeah, he has to, he he, he yells at their lawyer or their social worker or whatever you want to call it. Or, yeah, I think it's a lawyer. I, it's, probably, sure. it's probably a lawyer. Um, I don't care. We have to find a way around this con- this uh, this 
$300 a week week thing. We have to. I need 24-hour watch on my little brother because he is going to kill himself if I don't. But I have to go to work. 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 Yeah, that's where he was. No, let me ask you this. Lydia, do, do, does he work at a convenience store? No, he doesn't flip burgers either, before no? you ask. Uh, oh, oh, gotcha. He's one of those uh, guys in the library that sort the books, right? No, I don't think he has the education for that, really. Oh, uh, okay. He's not uh, a maintenance worker. A uh, sanitation worker. I thought you were going to go there. Yeah. No. Oh, well, what does he He's do? He's not even very sanitary when I think about it. <laughs> and I wish he was more sanitary. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> In a way, he's kind of like a doctor. He's kind of like a doctor. He's kind of like a dentist. He's kind of like a dom. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a, he. He's a butcher. He's he a... wears many hats. Uh, listeners, if you want to know what his job is, the best way I could describe it is imagine like Jigsaw from Saw, but people paid him to do it. I like the idea that, you know, if he were a female, everyone would just be like, oh, it's a dominatrix. People go and pay dominatrixes to do this kind of shit all the time. And it wouldn't even be interesting. But because it's Guy, and there's initially a female client that we see, and I'm sure he services clients of both genders, um, it seems strange. Because it's a man in his full rubber suit inflicting pain on somebody. So right away your brain is like, oh my god, he's a horrible person. This is like wrong and bad. But it's not. Mm-hmm. At all. And we're so used to the dominatrix as the person that you are allowed to go see and give cash to to beat you up or cut you or whatever, whip you, I guess. Flogging is the big popular one. That's the safest place to go when you're talking about kink stuff. Um, he's doing a lot more than fucking flogging somebody. Yeah, you, um, it almost seemed to me like a dark uh, body modder or something like that. Yeah. Like if you were to, or like, a, like almost like an American Mary thing, where you, where you're just like, oh, I'm f- like I'm fucking like he cuts off this woman's uh, pinky finger. pinky finger. Yeah, and, and and you're like, what is this? And now look, the context of this movie, uh, you spoiled it for me. I didn't know. But, and, and you kind of, you know, whatever, you just said what you said. But when you're watching the scene initially, and this is where uh, your friend's song is playing. Yeah, this is where the claw by Encephalon is playing during this yeah. initial set piece torture scene. So this character that you see that's all uh, dommed up, he kind of looks, he's in a rubber, out like he's a smock type deal. He's got a rubber mask on completely covering his face and almost looks like he's got... Like a- Crown like, of thorns. The crown of thorns. Like if, if Jesus was being crucified, but the thorns was too big and it slipped over his eyes, and he was like, oh, "I can't see you guys." It's not that low, but either way, yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's it's a very cool outfit. It's a cool outfit. He looks really neat. He he's very uh, even spoken. Uh, he's not like you know he's not like mannequin. He's very medical. And the woman is, is she's getting stuff knocked into her teeth, like little spikes and and, and like yeah. apparatus attached Shades to her. Shades of uh, imprint, Takeshi Miike's uh, mm. torture scene near the yep. end of imprint. Yep. And so you have this shit going on. Now, as an audience, you don't know. You've seen a lot of shit so far in this movie. You've seen a lot of people getting cut. You've seen skulls getting digged out by demons. So you're wondering, what is this? And why are they doing this to us? Because... You don't know it's Travis. Yeah, you don't know it's Travis. And then you find out that, oh, this once the session is over, the 
uh, he unties the girl and, and you're like, oh, she's she's going to untie and like she thinks she's going to escape and then he's going to kill her. And it's like all part of his psycho head games. And then when she's trying to get the apparatus out of her mouth, he just calmly explains to her, this is how you get it out. Lean forward, relax, pull it out. See, it's like, let it it's fall really out. Calm. Yeah, spider gags are stupid. I fucking hate them. Cool. They're drooly disgusting pieces of shit anyway. They look cool, though. So anyway, there's the realization that, oh, this woman is actually completely in control of this situation. Yeah, and she's actually handing this man money yeah. to have performed these things. He's cut her up quite well. He's tortured her very much. She looks like in a lot of pain. She's missing a portion of her fucking baby finger. Yeah, I know. And I was like, that has to hurt so bad. But she's like going to write a check for the guy. It's like, no checks, only cash. Even for my repeat customer. Yeah, so this is the, the, she's had a few of these sessions. Now, she also has access to a, a chemical compound that he requires. Yeah, ketamine. It's like, um, it's a party drug. It's definitely a party drug. And like a Rufalin or something like that? No, but it can be used in that context because it can render you pretty much immobile, right? And it can induce memory loss. So it can be used as a date rape drug, but it can be used as um, a fun, loosey-goosey hangout drug of some sort. I don't know, because I don't do drugs like that at all. So I just know people that have, right? Mm -hmm. And I do specifically know somebody who has used ketamine in the method that Travis is using it in this film, which is to help get him off of heroin. Now, this is a revelation to me, because I wasn't aware that there were such practices to try to get yourself off of heroin well it's not unlike taking methadone to get off any opiate right Mm -hmm. uh it's not quite what methadone does i will tell you that with ketamine but i think that he's using ketamine more of like a chemical restraint because it's not an urban myth that if you keep yourself away from heroin for three four days it does get out of your system and you're not going to be constantly looking for that every 30 minute dose right um it's the ritual and the social connections that are much harder to break. The chemical dependency is not that strong. Mm-hmm. So using the ketamine, he's probably looking, like I said, just to chemically restrain himself for a short amount of time because he doesn't seem to have a lot of friends. He's not really into the scene. He doesn't have somebody there constantly feeding him drugs by any means. So it seems that if he were to be able to get off the drugs for enough time for the chemical dependency to pass and the dope sickness to pass, that he'd probably be a lot better off. And not that he's siphoning money away from his brother entirely. I think he makes good money cutting people out and torturing people or whatever. That's a very niche market. I would assume he could almost charge what he wants. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, a typical dominatrix can make $300 an hour easy doing way less. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, endangering lives. I really doubt that they have a contract. I wonder. Maybe he does. I don't know. But... He's like going above and beyond that $300 entry level dominatrix is going to put a diaper on you and spank you for a while or <laughs> flog you or whatever. And you can make very, very, very good money. But I think it's just that he wants to be present. He doesn't want to be, nobody wants to be a junkie. That's not the goal mm-hmm. for people who begin doing drugs, right? Yeah. So he's found himself in this reality and wants the fuck out of it. Probably just a lot for the sake of his brother because there is a really strong bond and he is he does care for his brother and want to be there for him right so he's this particular customer can supply him with ketamine 
which he basically turns around. This is when we discover it's Travis because he takes his mask off to inject himself in the neck with ketamine mm-hmm. so he can chill the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Now, when he does this, he gets transported into the demon realm. Which isn't normally what happens when you do injection drugs. But it's important for the story because he meets... Who does he meet? Caliban. No, his name's not Caliban. Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles. No. He's just a lot like Caliban and Mephistopheles. Uh, Mobius. Mm -hmm. Which is not even a less weird, like, I'm probably a demon name. Yeah, you could think I'm joking again, right? (laughs) He totally reminds me of Caliban from The Tempest. Like, Mm. totally. Um, and he also makes this Mephistophelian deal with him as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Mephistophelian deals in this. Um, yeah. It's like you get into this hell realm and you're going to meet somebody the minute you walk in. And it's either going to be a huge demon that's going to crush you or it's going to be a little crouching guy with a bunch of jars, which we'll get to later, which is kind of like where the story goes a little bit on a tangent. Travis gets in there and meets Mobius, who right away wants to make a deal with him. Mm-hmm. It's like people who just hang, hang around the hell gates, like waiting for people to walk in to make deals with them. I think that this became a wonderful conflation of circumstances for Mobius. And when we learn more about that character's origin, because we're constantly going back in this movie, back, back, back. Yeah, like did he plan all of this? Did he handpick Travis to come he... in? The idea that he knew, he knows so much about Travis that we don't know that he knows. Because we don't even really know the extent of it just yet. But I think that given how this movie ends, yes. I think that it was was handpicked. It was handpicked specifically. It had nothing to do with anything. It was the fact that he was known to Mobius. Yeah. So... And 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 because why me? You cut people in life, and all I want you to do is cut people and uh, and again do what Use you do. This gift. Do what you do, anyways. And he warns that your brother has been claimed by a demon, and there's rules in the demon world, and he is violating these rules. And so it's two demons pitting themselves, pitting each other against uh, against each other. There's a, light, a slightly more righteous demon saying like, hey, you're breaking all the demon rules. I'm yeah. going to send this guy in to right your wrongs. And, and we could buy that story. But when we learn a little bit about Mobius, wondering if that is a lie. <laughs> yes. So we can go back to Travis's younger brother who... Is now has a babysitter who's reading that magazine. What was it? He's reading a magazine because he's been entrusted to babysit this little boy, or like this, like what, twelve-year-old boy or something. Let's, yeah, yeah, I would assume he's probably twelve or thirteen. In a wheelchair, and he's reading a porn magazine devoted to fetishes of people in wheelchairs. And this is the guy that you get to watch your little brother. I know, right? It's one thing for some goth girl to be looked at sideways as a babysitter and be like, I don't know if I trust my kids around you. You got purple nail polish on. Yeah. Like, you're 22 and you have pigtails. What are you trying to say? But you've hired a fucking babysitter for your 
brother in a wheelchair who's reading porn devoted people in wheelchairs. That is not fucking cool. Yeah, who's like this big dirty dude, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess Travis A doesn't have a lot of choice and B isn't a good judge of character. Yeah, that's entirely true. Yeah. This is also where we get to see a little more of his workplace because he goes back to his workplace to lament. And mm-hmm. I just see how dirty it is. It's like going, you know, into a barber and you're like, oh, they didn't like, there's other people's hair stuck in that brush. I don't know if I want to, I don't want to be here. Yeah. It's got a cool set design. I like all those little implements on the wall, even though they're all completely encrusted in blood and shit. Um, I've never seen a dungeon in such a disarray. That's disgusting. It's disgusting and deplorable and wrong. There's nothing about when his dungeon is in use that's disgusting, deplorable, and wrong. It's all that's very, all very cool. But it's the aftermath that he hasn't cleaned that up. That's deeply disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of hanging chains with light bulbs on the end of it. It looks cool, but oh, it is... Yeah, Edison bulbs on chains. Yeah, it's it is very one. dirty, though. Yeah. Now, this is about the point where the babysitter, this big dirty babysitter with his wheelchair pornography mag, passes out and falls asleep while his kid brother is getting sung to by this disgusting pig thing. I like the pig demon so much. He's so you need to see him to believe him. Yeah. And sing along with Yeah, I, I I wish I was there watching this the, the these two scenes with this guy. It's like I wish I was there on set when this guy had to do this because did they play music for him to dance around to or it's so surreal and that's definitely not the like that that's scene has been 80 yard so so the voice is like a childish voice yeah like Like it's like a cartoon it's it's like a saturday morning funny character here to keep you company while you eat your cereal kids but what do you I wish that there were shows like that when I was a kid. Hilarious House of Frankenstein has got nothing on this guy. Yeah, that's true. Um, I was going to say, like, didn't they have, like, Captain Kangaroo or H.R. Puff and stuff when you were a kid? I'm not that old. <laughs> H. I don't even know this H.R. Puffing stuff. H.R. So. Puffing stuff. How old are you, sir? <laughs> old enough to have the use of Google. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, in a way, Thomas killing this babysitter is kind of okay because, mm-hmm. you know, he might have been at risk for some really warped child abuse right there mm-hmm. because he was entrusted for quite a long time. Usually Travis seems to go away for mm-hmm. most of the night to do his work, right, as a dom, but like... He's being left alone with this guy, the seedy guy, who's probably some sort of drunk or addict of some sort, who's reading pornography about people who are developmentally or handicapped in some way or shape or form. So that's like really scary in a way. So it's almost like damage control. I think killing this guy is damage control. Maybe. Because he kills this guy and plays with his entrails while Mr. Skinny is dancing around with his entrails. It's pretty... <laughs> Guys, it's pretty graphic. But it's yeah, pretty great. It is pretty great. Um, I do like this scene a lot. Uh, until, of course, it goes from fun because Thomas is having quite a bit of fun stabbing the fuck out of this guy and clawing through his guts. Mm-hmm. And... Then you remember, oh yeah, Mr. Skinny wants him to kill himself, and he definitely wants to kill himself. 
the sad reality perhaps yeah. of spending all of his life in a chair alone. Now, yeah, Mr. Think... Skinny convinces him to wrap the entrails around his neck and hangs himself. Now, I'm curious. Yeah, intestines. I asked you this. Yeah. The intestines can support even a kid, like someone's weight like that? Oh, intestines are really incredibly strong. Yeah. They're slippery, though, so I think that tying them in a knot... Tying them in a knot isn't hard, apparently, but just handling them to get them into a knot is extremely slippery. Mm-hmm. So it would be a lot more difficult i think to tie some sort of noose but now this isn't a typical noose either because it's wrapped around thomas's neck thrown over something some rafter pipe or something i assumed yeah i assumed that he would have flung it over and a big water pipe yeah and mr skinny pulled on it to pull him up now if this were happening in real time and thomas were acting alone because we've been proven that we can't see mr skinny Mm -hmm. right he's tied some sort of noose and jumped off of a chair or something like most people do but he's not mobile so he can't really do that so how would somebody who's not mobile hang themselves we saw that in twitch of the death nerve aka bay of blood where somebody in a wheelchair hangs himself Mm -hmm. so that could have been how thomas had accomplished this if he's accomplishing this by himself if you were to hang yourself with intestines you would at least have a little more give to that rope quote-unquote that you're using and you wouldn't be at risk for an accidental decapitation which mm-hmm. is usually the how most hangings the most self-inflicted hangings end unfortunately because you're misjudging the give of the rope and the length of the drop and things like that there's a lot of math to do when hanging yourself um intestines would work really well in that the knot would tighten very rapidly it's quite slippery intestines mm-hmm. apparently so it would tighten quite quickly, and there would be enough give, so you would choke for sure, whether it took, you know, seconds or many, many, many minutes, many, too too many long minutes. Mm-hmm. You would definitely suffocate yourself that way or break your neck with the bounce, mm-hmm. but you probably wouldn't decapitate yourself. Mm-hmm. And I've given this way too much fucking thought. I think so, but I also am assuming that Mr. Skinny is assisting him in this we see hoof prints. When Travis comes back mm-hmm. home in, in a state because he's yelling for his brother, his brother's not mobile. His brother has to, he can lift himself up. He's got a little bit of upper body strength, but he has no muscle motion from the chest down, it seems, mm-hmm. right? So his brother can't go very fucking far. And if the door is locked and he's not in the apartment and he's got dead guy here on the couch because his guts are absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. Travis is freaking out, calling his brother's name. He's nowhere to be found. We don't see evidence of these guts used to hang him whatsoever, but we do see bloody hoof prints all mm-hmm. over the floor. Yeah. So but I'm confused about whether Mr. Skinny is visible or not. I think that in these moments, you could when a when a demon when a demon is demons typically speaking are stuck in their hell dimensions they can enter into our dimension if they are welcomed either consciously or subconsciously welcomed into our either through possession or in this case i would believe that you uh, uh mr skinny would have been invited to our realm to been able to partially cross over in order to acquire travis's little brother for himself by virtue of the fact that that his little brother 
had, under the influence of the demon, killed a person. Yeah. So that should unlock the demon's ability to enter our world. So in the moment that he killed that person, I believe that Mr. Skinny would and did manifest himself into our main dimension. The, The writer of this film definitely did their homework on demonic behavior. Yeah. And... So I think that... This is adhering to the rules. Even yeah. though Mr. Skinny's point is to break the rules of being a demon, yeah. he still or, needs or, to adhere to some... D- demons, demon, yeah, like demons do have to follow the rules, but a clever demon knows how to just bend them just before the breaking point. And, or assist and, people into yeah, fulfilling like, some of those little caveats. Yeah, so exactly. Can get so, away with the next step. Yeah, I can't force this person to do anything, but... If this kid kills somebody, well, guess who's damned to hell? Uh, or if this person kills themselves, guess who's damned to hell? Yeah. They're mine now. Yeah. Now, if it's like I can't come into their world, hold the knife and plunge it into their chest, but I can certainly make them feel like it's their only option. So I, I so I, I think that in that moment, Mr. Skinny was real. We saw the hoof prints. That kid was unable to hang himself. The body is gone. He he manifested himself. Too sure. bad we missed it. It's like Pokeroo. <laughs> We're making a lot of. Um, we got some like HR Puffin stuff. We got Hilarious House of Frightenstein. We got the polka dot door. Is there any other like old kids? That's the part that sticks with me so well. And you know what? It doesn't happen again. We get Mr. Skinny's show one and a half episodes maybe, yeah. and they're only like four minutes long. They only went to pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Best TV show ever, man. Best TV show ever. <laughs> and we have 80 minutes of other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And demons and death and dismemberment and guts absolutely everywhere is all nice and all, but the Mr. Skinny show is really what I love this movie for. Travis now is absolutely willing to barter a deal. Oh, yeah. Anything to get his brother back. Mm-hmm. So this demon has a plot. He is going to essentially teach Travis necromancy. With a book. With a book. Yeah, because you can't just fucking the crow or matrix this shit right into his head. Yeah. I know. Why so, not? Why save time like that? Why, why not give him a nice book? So he studies necromancy and then at the same time he's dealing with the fact that he's got a disemboweled fella on his couch but don't you worry because he is going that is going to be his first uh dipping of the toe into necromancy yeah now he has a practice body yeah so he brings his friend back to life who becomes his like mute sidekick i guess monkey butler yeah his monkey butler he's the dude with the foobar shirt that we saw at the beginning of the movie when travis has long hair it's like this is where this guy has come from and you understand that you know, now he's got himself a friend, a zombie. He's not a zombie. He's a, like, a, like a flesh golem, basically. So this is like, this is where we leave Travis. And we understand how Travis became a necromancer. We understand why he picked Bubbles from the beginning of the movie to go... And rescue and, his and brother, rescue his basically. Brother. We understand what happened to his brother. No one's being entirely honest. You're getting a lot of half-truths in their stories, but once you see their background, you're like, okay. It's not like they didn't... He's not going to tell this guy that he has made a bet with this demon because we're going to find out who this demon is. Which is 
lovely. And if there were ever a film made of Poppy Z. Bright's Lost Souls book, I think that Ghost would best be played by this guy. Because he looks, he's blonde, he looks quasi albino or something. But it's really cool how, you know, some of my complaints of Mobius as a demon is mm -hmm. that he looks way too fucking human. But mm -hmm. if they would have made him look any less human, because all they really have is his pallor. They've sort of airbrushed all of his bones and, and ribs and stuff, so he has a lot more definition and looks a lot more emaciated than he actually is. Mm -hmm. And he's got uh, black contacts in, right? Yeah. So I, at first I was always like, oh, he keeps taking me out of, like, that he's a demon, believable as a, an entity or a resident of this hell world because he looks so so human. But then that connection might be lost between his absolutely human character who was alive not that long ago uh, in the human world. And I don't know who names our kid Mobius. Somebody who has big plans. Big plans. <laughs> big plans for their kid in the future. Big plans. Big plans of working at a bar all your life. So Mobius is this regular dude. He seems like a really nice guy. He works at a bar. He has a shitty girlfriend, like lots of nice guys do. And He's mute, yeah. He's mute, which is a really neat trick because there's other mute characters in this, mm -hmm. but this is like a not evil person. And then, like there seems to be no real karmic reason for him to be mute. It's really kind of sad and tragic that he's mute. But he gets along fine. He's a bartender. He seems to be a good bartender. His patrons like him. Yeah, he seems friendly. He seems to be genuinely concerned with people. Yeah. Uh, a, a fella gets, I guess, yelled, uh, chewed out by a lady there, and she leaves, and he gets slapped in the face, and he gives him a, a drink. And uh, Travis is there uh, mourning the death of his, the recent death of his brother, or as... Uh, Mobius is, uh, oh, oh, I don't want to, fuck, it's so weird because, like, things become spoilers. Yeah. Uh, we're not there yet in the story. But basically what we find out is that Mobius is a nice guy who's a mute bartender who has a shitty girlfriend who uh, we've actually seen already in this movie, but yeah. not as alive. No, because her name is Elizabeth. She's Elizabeth, and she doesn't seem to like her boyfriend because she he works late. He's a bartender. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine... Yeah, this this irks me as a as a creature of the night. Yeah, I work uh, like like my writing stuff is definitely what I identify myself most as. But my primary source of income is working overnights. Yeah, and I have definitely encountered people who act like it's such an inconvenience for fucking them. Oh, can't believe you have this overnight job. That's so inconvenient for me. Fuck you like it's so convenient for me to sleep during the day to fucking have no social life oh i'm living it up yeah. sorry so sorry that i have to sleep when you're fucking awake and you know what you do stupid shit like oh create comic books and watch movies that you enjoy that no one else seems to and record a fucking podcast on one of your days off yeah yeah, so that's inconvenient for them too. So yeah, it's many, many bar workers have a hard time. I'm sure police officers have the exact same complaint. Yeah. People don't want to date somebody with a fucking weird shift. They want yeah. a nine to five person. Yeah. So like, so like, sorry, firefighters, police officers, people in the military. Oh, you're gone for six months. Don't you know what that does to me? What the fuck? What's yeah. wrong with people, Lydia? I know, and that 
I have to say, and I'm going to be that shit, that mean person. All the acting in this film is great. All of the acting in this film is great. And Agreed. specifically, actually, the guy that plays Travis, uh, Chad Grimes. Man. I love this guy. Get the fuck. Yes. Get this guy in more fucking shit immediately because he's great. He's super great. The, the, all the lines that he delivers are super convincing. He's fucking gorgeous. Like, like, oh my God, why is this guy not... There's no reason why this guy isn't in like mainstream stuff right I now. I don't understand. You know, you want to take Bill Mosley and Jared Leto and sort of smoosh them together? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I get when I watch this guy. And I, I he is. He's a he's a great actor. Yeah. Given like a pretty taxing role, actually. Yeah. Um, and he goes through the motions just fine. I really like him on screen. I like the guy that plays Mobius as well. Yeah, he's great too. I like bubbles. Oh my god! Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even with the bubbles, really convincing, really strong. It's not his fault. His glasses make him look like bubbles. <laughs> but I do got to take a little tiny poop in the mouth of the girl that plays Elizabeth. You know, the most convincing is when she was just dead. Yeah, totally. <laughs> she was fine when she's dead. I loved her when she's dead. She's a great actress in the beginning. Mm-hmm. For the first like few minutes, she's on screen dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a perfect corpse. Zeliana Rivera, I think. I don't know how to it's say her name exactly, but... It, it's only when she starts talking. That scene with Mobius in the apartment... Yeah. It's like, ugh. And then... Ugh. Ugh. The scene with Elizabeth and her boyfriend. Yeah. What Her boyfriend, Bubbles. Yeah. Her boyfriend is Hagen. So it is this massive love triangle mm-hmm. where basically... The demon is just wanting to get back at the people that killed him. Yeah. This is what this has all been about. Hagen was convinced by Elizabeth that they should kill Mobius because she wants to be free and clear of him. By the way, she's pregnant with his kid. She won't even just dump him either, this selfish kind of I know. Because I was just like, so the dude works late. He seems like a nice guy. Like, I don't understand why you need to murder him. You're you're cheating on him. Just dump yeah, him. That's really, really, really where this story reaches mm-hmm. too far. By the way, we learned that Mobius. What connects these guys together is the fact that they've all dabbled in Satanism. They've all dabbled in trying to communicate with this hell. Yeah, not necessarily Satanism, but not it's... Satanism. I'm sorry, I misspoke. That's not what I meant. I just meant to say that um, they've all dabbled in trying to contact this hell dimension. He, uh, uh, Mobius, we see, has, like, carved stuff into his body. Elizabeth is aware of this magic and necromancy. Yeah, she's read some of his books. Because of that. Um, and, uh, and so, and so, like, at the same time Mobius is dealing with this type of, his life, basically, and Travis is dealing with the death of his little brother, all of these things are happening simultaneously. So you get this idea when Mobius finally, sorry, when, uh, Hagen and Elizabeth try to kill him. They try to poison him, and they don't quite get the concoction right. I mean, you don't know what you're doing, so... And they're trying to use weed killer, which I can't imagine is overly effective. So... Not as effective as a lot of other fucking things. I know. So that's what I'm saying. I, I was like, there's a, there's a, there is a chemical in weed killer that can kill humans, but you're talking about... You may as well just say, like, drink the detergent underneath the... Drano. The, the, yeah, the Drano. Drano. You know, you know Why what I'm didn't saying? they just inject an air bubble into his vein? They could have done a million. They could have done a million things. Yeah. They could, like, the neighborhood they live in, they could have just bashed his fucking brains in. Oh, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, and gotten away with it just fine. Yeah, I'm breaking out in here. There's a million things they could have done. He's a fucking bartender. Unfortunately, people at work late at night are at that risk. Like, you can't walk yeah. down a hall, an alleyway without taking a yeah. risk on their lives, right? So, yeah, they could have done absolutely fucking anything. But they're also not killers. Yeah, they're not killers. And they're cowards for two. So. Yeah, they're all they're all shitty people. So, basically, in uh, when Mobius drinks this <laughs> gack, to use another 90s kids show reference... Like, it's this glowing There's green. one of the Halloween Kool-Aids that look a lot like it. <laughs> it's like, yep, this nuclear green concoction. I'm just going to drink that. I don't know what it is. My lady left it for me, and she won't even kiss me anymore, so this is probably fine. <laughs> he drinks that fucking shit, almost dies, but he still has enough strength. And then when they come in to move Try his and body... fight them off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so he starts... Uh, he fights off Hagen, knocks him out temporarily, and then in his rage starts to choke out Elizabeth. Yeah, he's a pinned against the wall, and he, it is rage, and he's also kind of half dead, so he's not all there, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, look, I don't know how I would treat the person that was trying to kill me. Probably not well. I know, right? Now... now even though he's a super nice guy, you can't blame him. Yeah, and he seems very peaceful, too. Just, like, so calm. Maybe it's because he's mute and he can't actually talk. Now, he has an inner monologue, which is very beautiful, and we'll get into that uh, in a minute. But Hagen wakes up, realizes that his uh, his uh, darling Elizabeth is, is in trouble. <laughs> like a fucking WWE wrestler grabs a steel chair and just hits that motherfucker until his head turns into chili. And, Basically, yeah. And then we... Uh, Mobius... I was excited to see what word you were going to choose. <laughs> uh, hefty bag full of meat. He's dead. He's done. He Mobius wakes up fully intact, able to speak in this hell dimension where he's going to have this, a conversation. Sort with... of like in Dream Warriors. Don't want to yeah. dream no more. So, Sorry, yeah. you can't say Dream Warriors without me fucking just... That's why I do it. <laughs> Uh, this... With a demon ready, like they do, hanging out at the Hellgate, waiting for you to walk in to make a deal with you. Yeah. This time you're encountering a creature that is far less threatening, far more docile, it appears, preoccupied almost. They're feasting on the corpse of something, a person of some kind. This is like... We have encountered a Hell World version of what could have been Thomas in his wheelchair as well. And he was about the most docile looking demon in there too. And this is another one of those more childlike demons. And of course, like most demons hanging out at the Hellgate in this film, waiting to make a deal with somebody, there's a really deep connection between the person who's just walked into Hell and this demon. Mm-hmm. This particular demon is Elizabeth's unborn child. He wants it all avenged, basically. Mm-hmm. He, he, the, the, he wants Mobius to get his revenge because of his life cut short. And now he's damned. This world doesn't create... It's almost like Death Note in the fact that... Well, as opposed to like, well, in Death Note, the, the message is that people die and that's it. And they're gone and there's no afterlife. And, and... Shinigami don't necessarily care about you. They just... They're bored. They're they're bored. So this also presents an idea that death is equal. But instead of the idea that death is uh, a complete and utter oblivion, then 
what this presents is that you all go to the same place and it's boring. It's dull. It's just an endless industrial hallway to nothing. And if somebody presents you with a way or a means to avenge your death or contact somebody and collect them to bring them over as well, I guess for company's sake, I'm not mm-hmm. really sure, then they're going to take that chance. There's mm-hmm. nothing better to do. It's really interesting to me to see uh, to to the, the time frame because when we first encounter Mobius before he makes his transformation into the demon, you might even assume... Is he ancient? How like w- was he there on the death of Christ, or, or are we talking about like it's, we can't tell? Even when Mobius, a human, just entering the demon world, encountering this thing, which is his child, Elizabeth only died moments mo- ago. Moments ago, yeah. but it's sitting there already. So I was like, I really liked how they fucked with time. I really liked how. It, it, and not every demon needs to be 500 years old or have witnessed the Crusades. Yeah, exactly. Like and I'm not yeah. saying they have to. I but, like that, too. Yeah, like, I, but, but I really liked how they fucked with time and, like, they seem really in the know. And and I love, like, how much they lie. And cause, yeah. Because, like, Maybe this is how Travis's hair grows so fast. All those yeah. repeated trips. Do, yeah. And ketamine-induced trips to the hell world to hang out with Mobius. Yeah. Maybe mm. his hair grew extra long. Yeah, like the room of spirit of time in Dragon Ball Z. Like it's like, yeah. <laughs> so you and and so maybe that demon isn't even the 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 spirit or the 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 demonic representation of his kid. He could just be fucking lying. Yeah, you don't know. Mobius lied, uh, like completely. It was never about getting Travis's brother back. Brother no. back. He doesn't know. What, like he doesn't. He doesn't. Maybe he knows who Mister Skinny is. Maybe that's why Hagen walked into the Hell World and got dead immediately. Yeah, or double dead. I guess double dead. <laughs> yeah, because he, he wasn't really dead. He was just p- passing through. But yeah, yeah, passing through. But he was killed there. That's why he got attacked immediately. Mm-hmm. Travis was also attacked when he was there. The last time we see Travis, he's getting fucking murked by that big dude. Yeah. So, so like the cleaner of the hell world. Yeah, executioner style, like not quite like a pyramid head, but kind of in the same sort of. You get the idea that when this dude shows up, you're fucked. Like whoever this guy is, the other demons seem content to to menace you and to talk to you and and speak. And I want to talk about uh, the 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 narration a little bit in this movie. The dialogue that the demons have. It's extremely strong writing. Um, it's very reminiscent of uh, comic books out of the '80s. It really reminded me; it was Gaiman-ish, and, yeah. in in uh, like like it really reminded me of Neil Gaiman. It really reminded me of of the stuff that Alan Moore was doing back in the day. Um, Grant Morrison, like these types of writers who talk about heady concepts, but also trying to present it in a palatable way for the general audience. I think that yeah, we're using really like lowest common denominator words, yeah, so that everyone can understand what they're trying to get, mm-hmm. at, which sometimes sabotages the deeper meanings behind what they're saying. It, it can, but I think the idea, for example, like the most Neil Gaiman like thing. Uh, for people who don't know, shame on you. But the the author of Sandman, and uh, he worked with uh, Terry Pratchett and did Good Omens, which is a really good book. And that, it's being adapted for screen. That's really, really cool. Um, see, I'm not a reader, and I love Good Omens. But anyway, um, so, uh, so you have practical reasons for having the Diefenbunker. That's not the Diefenbunker, but the practical reasons for having this as being hell. For those of you who don't know what the Diefenbunker is, because we've said it a million times, nearby Ottawa, I believe it's in Carp, or... Yeah. yeah, It is uh, um, 
Cold War era bunker yeah. that was supposed to be for I suppose like our prime minister and all our like big up big wigs our governmental and military big wigs to go and hide mm-hmm. if we had atomic war yeah now, now like a museum yeah it's a museum and people uh, like to film stuff there yeah um, a friend of mine a photographer John Wenzel has done a lot of really cool cyberpunk theme photo shoots in the Defen bunker it's a really cool space um, and I wish it would be used more honestly yeah but uh, people don't. It doesn't really come to mind. This isn't the Defen bunker, but to, to give you an idea, it looks like a bunker. It looks like or a, a sewage system. Like it looks industrial. Or it's something a, like Woman in Black too. They did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some scenes in there that were like Defen bunker esque. Mm-hmm. So you you think like this is hell. This is lame. And you, and you as the audience get shitty because you say, oh, I see. Like you have no fucking money, and so you can't do a big CGI. Hellscape, like, like 70s album cover. So and if I can't see fucking Bahamut on a fucking mountain with, like, giant wings encroaching everything, well, I don't know, everyone just fucking does, like, the hardest fucking guitar riffs that they could possibly... That's my help. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Anyway, so there's not any of that. This character brought, uh, steals the thunder, draws attention to the fact that, oh, what, you thought... It was going to be Hellfire and Brimstone, and you're disappointed that it's a long, boring place with an like of nothingness, and and that line, I was like, ooh, they did it. They fucking not only did they explain what hell is and why it looks this way, kind of made me feel stupid for being disappointed at it. Yeah, because they're making fun of you, the audience, for wanting it to be. 70s album cover and you got industrial complex but they couldn't not do that they no they couldn't but it's still... it also takes it out of the judeo-christian version of hell that we're all expecting and accustomed to seeing right? exactly but i but like the the writing i felt was really strong in that scene. yeah i liked it a lot look the demon is saying fuck all and at this point it doesn't really matter because we're getting out of here soon sooner than i thought yeah but i i just think that uh, like even the, the the conversations with Mobius were really good. The idea of of the the rules of the demonic world and 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 what Mister Skinny is. I really wish they went back to that, but they didn't. I found that my only complaint with those scenes because I do appreciate them too on one level, and on the other, I found a lot of them went on a little long, and I found it was a lot of telling and not showing. Right, and of course, what they're going to show more of that hallway with the lights flickering out. Okay, that's. You know the the passage yeah. to hell. Okay, maybe they shouldn't show so much as much as tell. So they did have to like really kind of spoon feed you their mythology, they, but they did. But it, it's like a play almost. Yeah. Like and but I think again you're talking about like this is budgetary reasons. Yeah. So it, it's breaking a lot of the rules of film, and it is doing a lot of telling and not showing. But I I the whole time I I kept thinking, this is like a play. This yeah. is this is coming that you're supposed to almost like I'm watching a stage production as opposed to a movie, which isn't a bad way to go. And I agree, it would be nice to talk about things and uh, like for briefly. Or I guess the most jarring thing about it is the fact that the it's all these quick music video cuts so early in the film, and then towards the end of the film, we're dealing with more long, drawn out, static scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the movie almost like ramps up really fast and then peters out and slows, which 
is an opposite. Typically speaking, a movie will start out slow and then do 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 do. You're you're it's a high octane white yeah. knuckle thrill ride. That's all... your favorite line. Yeah, <laughs> it's a white. It's it is kind of a white knuckle thrill ride when you hit the ground running in a film like yeah. this. But then by the end, then... you're sort of not exhausted, mm-hmm. but the actors and the scenes seem exhausted in mm-hmm. a way because they are sort of winding down to this anti-crescendo. So what we learn, so this movie tricks you two times. Makes you think the movie is about Hagen. Yeah. Then you think the movie is about Travis. And then you find out that this movie the entire time was about Mobius. Yeah. And it explains all of his screen time and why they kept him so humane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that you can really actually relate to his thread through the entire story. Yeah, and and so by the end of this movie, he, he it, by the end of this movie, you see the genesis of Mobius's plan that set everything into motion mm-hmm. about why Hagen was chosen, why Travis was chosen. Elizabeth was always dead, and there was nothing they could ever do about that. But he needed his final revenge against sweet, sweet revenge. Yeah, so. At 87 minutes, this movie is really short. I really wish that this movie had 30 more minutes in it. 30? I I didn't mean to yell that. 10, man. Maybe 10. Like, I agree that it needs a little something something tacked on at the end. Even just if enough to tie us back to the beginning, I just want to see maybe Travis with a straight razor again for a little bit. Just for fun. I think... um, Half an hour, though, would kill me. Well, maybe I'm trying to. Mm, I'm a fan <laughs> of 88-minute films, though, that much we have established. Yeah, that's true. I think that this movie needed to expand on a couple more ideas. Mr. Skinny would have been nice. I would have liked to delve more into what these creatures are. But then again, then again, if you look at movies that people are comparing this to, it's the same type of thing. The The nonlinear storyline is the most unique thing about this. But if you were saying like, like, because the first Hellraiser, they don't fucking explain anything about those things. No, they not at all. They give like vague fucking shit. There's like five minutes of screen time with those dudes in it. Yeah. And they don't, and they don't, the rest of the movie is not what you think it is. Unless you've seen it a million times like me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that, so like in that sense, these demons have a lot of screen time. Oh, definitely. And that's one thing that sets it apart from a film like Hellraiser for sure. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just about the relationships of the people on Earth and how they're dealing with what they've just been privy to. Mm-hmm. They've been privy to these things for a hell of a long fucking time. And we spend most of our time in the hell realm. Or with them witnessing the crossings over of denizens of the hell realm. So we're it's sort of like the opposite of Hellraiser. And for those that are into a film like this for more of the hell side of things, it's superior in that way because it's not just a story about a girl dealing with her pedo uncle. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we got next for him? Up next, we have Tetsuo. Now, is that about suicide? Because we had Suicide Club and there's some definite suicide theme in Necromantia. No, Tetsuo, the Iron Man, is a very good example of body horror. We're moving into the realm of body horror, which mm. we haven't done before. Good, because monsters aren't necessarily body horror because we aren't sitting there with that abject horror of having being able to envision any of these things being done to us, mm-hmm. necessarily. Unless you're going to sit there and watch Bubba there with his guts being ripped out and you're going to put yourself in his shoes, which is a lot harder to do than put yourself in Thomas's shoes wielding the knife mm-hmm. with Mr. Skinny hanging over your shoulder, egging <laughs> you on. 
or at least me. Um, and you can't really put yourself in the shoes of these really kind of amazing demons that are in necromantia, even though there is like the body horror going on mm-hmm. with that. But a body horror, I like that. And I like that after that we'll be getting into From Beyond. So we're mm-hmm. continuing that trend. We're back into the ooey-gooey 80s. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> I'm excited for Tetsuo because I haven't seen it, and I enjoy body horror. The end. No, it was just like, I mean, it was just like that's why you like me. Was, what are you saying? Well, it's because like my, my body's horrific. No, that's not the idea of body horror, is to watch a horrific body. I can watch a horrific body like I do every Saturday. Ah, uh, cha-cha-cha-cha. I'm kidding. Well, you know what you could do? Our version of body horror is just like, you can just sit here and just like watch me eat McDonald's endlessly until I bloat to like Mr. Skinny levels. And that's like a horrific transformation where you're like, what would happen to me if I ate that? Like in Slither. Yeah, like in Slither. Yeah, Slither is kind of flirting with body horror there with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think even Feed touches on that exact same sort of trend of body horror. But I can't really relate to anyone in Feed. I can't necessarily relate to anyone in Slither whatsoever either. I think for body horror to be effective, you have to be able to relate to what you're seeing happen to these people or what they're doing to themselves. Well, then you're going to love Tetsuo because it's about a dude that just turns into metal. I love that because it's not about a pregnant chick. (laughs) which i got nothing man i cannot relate to that shit and i wish body horror would stay the fuck away from pregnant women for me and on that note i'm les knife and i'm typical lydia and you've been listening to dead air